This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Let us open, if you're in here, to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 is where we will be, and, and let's start with this. I am going to assume, as I tell this little bit of a story, that most of us in here have been called for jury duty at some point. Uh, You get that summons in the mail, and it's just like, well, that's great. Now that whole week is ruined. I got a plan against it. Kind of anxious. So going to jury duty, here's my experience. I think this is probably similar for a lot of us. Going to jury duty is simultaneously stressful and boring at the same time, is, is it not? Uh, you're you're kind of thinking, please don't select me. I, I only want to do this the one time, and I just want to go home. But there's also this element, as long as I'm here, don't make me sit in this weird little room all day watching soap operas on TV. I want to do something. So I hope I at least get to, to see some action. So I've, I've been called a few times... I've never served on a jury. And the last couple of times, it's gone like this. I've been, I have been called into the courtroom, and I've had the, the counselors, you know, the, the lawyers, ask me questions. And, and if you're not familiar with this process, the, the way it works is each side has a, a certain number of, and I, I looked this up, they're called peremptory challenges, There's your word for the day, peremptory challenges. Basically, it's a veto where each side can say, I want to dismiss him or her a certain number of jurors a certain number of times. So both times I've made it into the courtroom, I've been questioned by the lawyers, and I've been vetoed. Again, kind of stressful, kind of boring. Like, you got me here, I'd like to do something besides answer your questions and then leave. At the same time, good, I just want to go home. And so, but I was kind of, the last kind of time, I was a little bit offended. I was like, I, I think I could be fair and impartial. I think I could be good at this. What about me wasn't pleasing to you and you had to, you know, dismiss me? So I, I have a friend who's a lawyer and I asked him, I was like, why would I be let go? And, and, and he said, like, without hesitating, he says, it's because you're a pastor. And I was like, really? Why? And he said, they don't know what to do with you. They, they, they honestly, they wonder, are you the kind of pastor who wants everybody to follow the law and just doesn't get, get to have any kind of remorse or sorrow or pity for anybody who hasn't? Or are you going to be the kind of pastor who wants everybody to get a second chance, no matter how bad they've been? And I, I said, well, I, I guess, I, I think I'm kind of both. I, people should follow the law and I, I want to be merciful. So here's the thing. I'm pretty sure this friend was Right. And, and just, just so you're wondering, like, he's a Christian, and I asked him, like, if it were you and you were in court, would you dismiss a pastor as well? Again, without hesitation, he was like, definitely. Like, definitely. You're like, you're going. And, and he said, it's, it's not just because of you. He said, what, what lawyers are looking for is they want to find the most predictable people possible who they think are most likely to side with their things. They just don't want wild cards, and, and pastors are going to be wild cards. I've thought about that a lot, just kind of when it comes to justice and, and judgment, you know, who, who goes free. And I've thought about that a lot. I don't want to be seen as unpredictable. I want to be clear. And, and so I, I began wondering, because when people hear that I'm a pastor, the first thing they, they're going to go to is some sort of view of God. 
Honestly, what they think of God is going to have a lot to do with what they think of me. And so I've wondered, do people think that about God? That he's unpredictable? Do you wonder, do people wonder how he's going to judge? Who he's going to judge? Who gets life and who gets death? And so if you wonder, people you know wonder, what I'm hoping happens this morning is that as we read where we're going in John 5, I hope that you'll hear the words of Jesus, the voice of Jesus will speak to you, and you will no longer wonder how God judges, how God decides between life and death. You'll no longer wonder how God decides to execute his judgment Because Jesus is going to tell us very clearly how. Jesus is clear here. He's going to tell us that everybody's known to God. Everybody comes before God. And the difference, the judgment is made, the the difference between eternal life and condemnation is very plain. It's very simple. It's right here before us. Jesus is not going to be ambiguous about this in any way. So there's clarity here when it comes to the resurrection and the judgment of God. So let's read in our Bibles, starting in John chapter 5, verse 25, and then I want to draw out five aspects of the way that God brings some people to life and he leaves some people to stay in death. So John chapter 5, if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, there should be one in the rack in front of you. It's black, it's a hardback book. It has a table of contents to help you find the gospel of John, which is in the New Testament chapter 5 and verse 25. And so if you're, if you're there, follow along with me as I read these words. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is here still, and I say still because we looked at this last week and we've actually been looking at it for the last couple of weeks now, talking with Jewish leaders who have confronted him and what what they're doing is they're angry that he had the audacity to heal a man who was paralyzed, had been paralyzed for a long, long time. He, He had the audacity to heal that man on the Sabbath. And their problem was that they had made a rule, not God, they had made a rule that they couldn't, that couldn't be done. You couldn't heal according to these Jewish leaders on the Sabbath. And so this is what we said last week on Easter. When they come to him, the real issue isn't kind of at the bottom, at the root, the healing. The real issue is who they think God is and who Jesus is telling people God is. Really, the issue is, does God come close? Is he near to people who seek him? Is he kind and gracious and patient? Or is God cold and distant? And what we said last week was that God is gracious beyond measure. 
His grace knows no bounds. He's always been near, but in Jesus Christ, he came so close that he actually became one of us, walked the earth among us. That's what happened when God the Son became man. And so it was this God-man, Jesus, that, stood, that was standing right in front of them. You, you can't get any closer to these men who were confronting them than to be God in the flesh in front of him. Yet they still were operating from a worldview, a life view that said God is angry and he's far. And the only way that he, we have any hope of getting him to come closer is by just being doggedly obedient to every little rule that not only he but we can come up with. So they invented hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sub-rules. Ticky-tack little things. you got to understand this about Jesus. There has never been such a holy, righteous, obedient, and all these words go together now, gentle, compassionate friend of sinners like there was in Jesus Christ. And so when it comes to the rules... Jesus is very clear that you obey God fully, but that first, you don't saddle people with other rules, and second, when we don't obey the rules, all is not lost, because he has obeyed them perfectly, and we can have his righteousness given to us. That's what happens through the cross, and it's assured by the resurrection. And so to truly live because all of us are going to fail in some way at obeying the rule of God. To truly live, you don't have to obey all the rules. You have to believe upon Jesus Christ. And then he grants to life anybody who asks for it, rule breaker or not. But then he also says this, you can't take him for granted. When you hear him, you have to honor him. There's no such thing as hearing the voice of Jesus receiving the life that he gives, and then deciding from there you go on your own way. That can never be how it works. When your life is in him, you go his way. That's what it means to honor him. And so Jesus stands in front of them to say, not that there is no law, but that he's come to fulfill the law, and all these silly little sub-rules that they've tried to stack onto the law are not representative of, true God, of the true God, and they certainly aren't the character of people who have faith in the true God. That's what he said before this. That's, that's what he's come, that's what he said kind of last time in, in what he's doing before this. Now he tells us how all of that works. He's going to tell us even some of the mechanics of that. And he's going to say, first, it comes through the resurrection, which happens to everyone. Some are resurrected to life, some to judgment. That's what we get in that last verse. And so there, there are five aspects, at least five aspects of the resurrection, life, and judgment given to us right here in these few verses. And I, and I want to point this out before I, I move through these one through five. We're told these not so that we would be afraid. We're told them so that we wouldn't have to be. The future the unknown, what hasn't happened yet, is very nerve-wracking for most of us. These, these are serious things, the most serious, in fact. But we're not told them so that we would panic. 
We're, we're told them so that when we wonder and, and even when we have doubts and when our anxiety about them starts to get the better of us, we would be able to know for certain how to come through them, how to be his through them, which brings us through them. And we're told that when we're his, we're his forever. So if you have doubts about the future, if that brings up anxiety in you, here is Jesus telling you this so that you will have peace. So aspect number one of the resurrection, life, and judgment. Number one, the resurrection is here now. Look again at verse 25. Uh, The first shift that Jesus makes from what this group who was gathered around him, no doubt kind of had begun to believe, but was thinking is to say that the resurrection had begun. So there were two, two basic schools of thought among Jewish scholars and teachers uh, concerning the resurrection at this point in history. The first is there were some who believe there's no resurrection. There's just none. And the second would be that there would be a resurrection, but it would be for all people simultaneously at some point, but it happens in the future. So nobody was walking around saying it was already beginning to happen. The resurrection was sort of already underway. But here Jesus says, an hour is coming and is now here where these things are happening. So if nobody else was saying this, how can Jesus say both are true? And and what we're meant to see here is the finality in what Jesus is saying. That's more clear in in the second part that it's happening now. It's easy to say something's coming. But to say it's already here, that's another level. And that's why Jesus says it like this. An hour is coming and is now here. That's why he says it like this. He's saying no more speculation about what God is like. No more man-made rules. No more more burdening the people unnecessarily. You know, the the man-made rules were only designed to make the rule makers look good and the rule breakers look bad. They're only to set up a, a social order that benefits the ones who make the rules. Jesus is saying, though, life in God for anybody who's going to receive him starts now. Uh, This has to be the biggest misconception or biggest error that we find among even well-meaning Christians to this day. And the misconception is that the, the life God offers, the life that Jesus gives, is not something to be deposited in in a safe deposit box at the bank, and then you wait until your death to open it, and then you get the life of Jesus. No, that's a misconception. You bank it now, so it's in the bank, but you start withdrawing it right away. Your life in Jesus, if you're in him, is currently being lived. The resurrection's here. It's taking place right now. And that brings us to aspect number two. Jesus gives life. The life that Jesus gives comes from himself. So he can give it and he can start it in us now because it's his to freely give because he owns it all. Uh, so life, life in Jesus starts this way. It starts in him, out of his joy, and then you receive it 
because he wants you to have it as soon as possible. So in chapter 11 of this gospel, Jesus is going to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not I will be, I am. So when you have him, you already have been given life. And he can give it like that because he holds it all and it all flows through him. So just look again at verse 26. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. That's an incredible claim. And it's true. And so just, let me just show you why it's so special. So people will regularly say, you know, Christianity is just one faith among many. There's lots of ways to God. There's, there's lots of ways to have faith in the world. That's just not true. It's simply not. Christianity puts forward a claim that's so unique, you won't find it even paralleled anywhere else in all the world. Uh, this, and this claim is central to it right here. This claim that God has life in himself and gives it to Jesus in himself is unlike anything any other religious belief system in the world would teach. And so just take the world's biggest religions. Uh, take Hinduism. Uh, Hinduism teaches that Brahma, who they, they have literally millions of gods, but Brahma's the, the kind of the ultimate god. He was lonely, and so he split himself, and that's where life and, and the world came from. And, and so let me just ask you this. If that's what you were to believe about where creation came from, where life comes from, do you have a full life if you're lonely? Is your life full if you're lonely? No. No, no, no. You need something more to make life better. And so Brahma does not have life within himself. He needed something else. Uh, take Buddhism. Uh, Buddhists believe that life is constantly recreated. And the goal is actually to detach yourself from the world. And then when you are kind of fully detached, you would have something that, that they would consider it a true life. So, so the goal is, is kind of getting out of here. Well, life here, life now can't be full if the goal is this is what we want to escape. Uh, take Islam. Islam has a very similar creation story to Christianity. But what they don't have is a good answer for how somebody can know for sure that they have life. There are things to do. There are some steps that are fairly clearly laid out, but your eternal life is dependent on doing them all and then continuing in them without failure. And they certainly don't have anybody like Jesus, anything like Jesus, who says, even when you fail, I, can, I stand in your place, and so you receive my perfection in exchange for your failure. So Jesus giving this life from within himself is something completely revolutionary and is offered to the world only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's offered to everybody. This is an exclusive claim in the sense that it only comes from one source, but it's fully inclusive in that there's nobody in the world who would be denied this if they came to Jesus. Everybody can be saved through Jesus Christ. Number three, Jesus has authority because he is the Son of God and the Son of Man. 
He has the authority to give life because he's the son of God and he's the son of man. So you see this in in verse 27. Uh, There are two ways that Bible readers take these two titles. There's two titles for Jesus, son of God and son of man in these verses. And there are really two ways that that scholars take these titles to be operating here in these verses. Uh, The first is to say that this title, son of God, by, by using this, Jesus is saying that he has the power as God to raise the dead. And then he's saying as the son of man, as a man, he could suffer as one of us and he could take the place for people in their death. And that's how he could give us life. Now it's possible to read it that way. It's absolutely true theologically to conclude that. But I think when, when we want to be precise Bible readers, which is what we do, we could, we could show that what I just said was absolutely true. We could do that from many other places in the scripture, show that Jesus is God and he has the power to raise the dead as God. And he's a man and, he has the, uh, and, and, and so he's able to stand in for men and take our punishment, suffer in our place and re- in exchange to us his righteousness. That's theologically true. We can do that from many places in scripture. I don't think that's what John is doing here. I think he has something more specific, a connection that he wants us to make in these verses. You see this in verse 25. Jesus said, the resurrection is both coming and present already. And, it's ha- and it happens when, look, look at your Bible, what, what starts this? When the dead hear the voice of the Son of God. So it says in verse 25, when the dead hear the voice of the Son of God. The connection, I think, is when you start reading John's gospel and he wants to prepare you to meet Jesus, he builds anticipation. Chapter one just builds and builds and builds. It's such good writing. He tells you about this eternal word of God. The word of God has a reach and a power and a glory unmatched. And so you're you're building this anticipation. Who is this word? How can this word be? be possible even but how can it be known how can i have this word and then in john 1 14 you know he breaks in and he says what well, the word has become flesh and dwelt among us and in that we have seen the glory of god and then it says glory as of as the one and only son from the father full of grace and truth and then he tells us and it's jesus It's this man, Jesus Christ. And so when we read in verse 25 that the Son of God can do this through what he says, I think this is yet another way that John is saying this is what the incarnate word can do. He calls up the dead and he brings them out and they obey when he calls. And then I think there's another clue for reading these titles this way with the second title and how it fits in in verse 27. As a man, Jesus was able to sympathize with our weakness and, and suffer in our place. But the context in verse 27 doesn't point to suffering. It's about the authority to judge. Look at it again. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. That doesn't look like the context is pointing to suffering and weakness it's pointing to authority in over, overall. John is referring here to what Daniel prophesied in Daniel 7.13. Uh, in Daniel, there's this future prophecy 
where the nations of the earth are presented as savage, pagan. And so God appoints a judge over the nations to bring the brutality to an end And this savior who comes is given and placed over a new, better kingdom that lasts forever. Just listen to Daniel 7, 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion. And glory and the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is the one who's brought forward by God the Father, the ancient of days, to be placed over a perfect, peaceful, everlasting dominion. He's the son of God. He's the son of man. He's the one who rules over the kingdom of God forever and ever and ever. Number four, all the dead are raised. I've already kind of alluded to this. Verse 28, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice and come out. Uh, I can't stress this enough. This isn't something that just happens. The resurrection actually is not something that just happens, you know, for like Jesus people or people who are sort of interested in religion as, as if what we're doing right now is some sort of hobby convention. You know, we all like Star Wars or we all like model airplanes or railroads. Whether you're interested in it or not, you will be raised from the dead. So there's a time coming in the future, and this is how it goes. This is how the resurrection goes. Everybody will one day know that Jesus is Lord. Everybody. The difference will be that those who honored him and glorified him in their life when they know that he is Lord will receive his reward and blessing. And then those who kept on denying him will find that their hearts have been hardened And even though they'll know that he's Lord, they'll see that he's Lord, they'll see his glory, they will still want nothing to do with him. That's how the resurrection in eternity goes. You you might say, well, how is that possible? It's actually always been that way. It's that way right now. You know people that this is happening in, in Europe person that this is happening in. Uh, there are parts of the world. So there are parts of the world where people don't yet know the name of Jesus. They know nothing about salvation in him. We don't live in one of those places. This is not one of those places. Yet, people often ignore Jesus. And then many just deny him outright. Uh, the Bible teaches that we or most of us will die once. Unless Jesus comes back, we die. So most of us are going to die, deny once. That's our death in this life. But for the faithful, the saints in Christ, that death is, is only a kind of earthly, extremely temporary death. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 says that when you're in Christ, your death occurs quicker than the blink of an eye, and you'll be with the Lord after your death if you are in Christ. But there's a but. 
For those who deny Jesus, the Bible says they have a second death. It's the death that comes after judgment. Uh, Church, we can't make people accept Jesus. We just can't do that. Only God can do that. But we can do a better job of making sure they can't ignore Jesus. You following along with that? Some people are going to deny Jesus, and there's nothing that we can do about that. But we can make sure people can't ignore him. One of my favorite pastors says that Jesus should be non-ignorable. It's a made-up word. It's fine. Jesus should be non-ignorable in our city. And I hope we can do better at our part in that. Let's make Jesus non-ignorable because everybody has a resurrection. Everybody comes before God. That leads to this last point. Aspect number five, the resurrection, life, and judgment. Doing good leads to life. Doing evil leads to death. So verse 29 says that doing good leads to life. And then it says that, that doing evil leads to death. The key here is to understand what Jesus means by doing good and doing evil. So I think you'll agree that if what hangs in the balance is life or death, it probably is worth a few minutes to know what Jesus means by doing that good and doing that evil. We want to do good. So how do we know we're doing good? Is this something where we just sort of get a scale out, ask if our good deeds have outweighed the bad? Is it a percentage-based system? What's going on here? Uh, in the next chapter, here, here's, here's how, this is, a, this, is a, this is a very clear answer, actually. In the next chapter, the disciples will ask, just outright, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Right? That's the question. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answers them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who has, he has sent. So doing good starts with entrusting yourself to the one who is fully good. From there, when we ask, well, what's good? There's no opposition between being saved by faith and then doing good works. Followers of Jesus do his will. There's no such thing as followers of Jesus just fully not doing the will of God. Followers of Jesus follow Jesus. They do the will of God, and that's good. So if you ask, well, does this refer to what we believe, or does this refer to what we do? My answer is yeah. It's what we believe, and our belief leads us to what we do, all good for the glory of God. And the resurrection and both things lead to the resurrection of life. And so if that's true, it'll also be true for the opposite of trusting God. To reject God because he's good, and God is good, is to do evil. To reject him is to do evil. Because that which is against God is evil. And so you might say to that, somebody else might say to that, well, I'm not, you know, against God. I'm just for some other things. I'm just not, you know, for him. Maybe I'm for myself. Maybe I'm for something else. And James would just say this. The Apostle James would say, whoever tries to be a friend of the world, which is kind of be a friend of anything else besides God, is at enmity or an, an enemy of God. 
the writer of Hebrews in 11.6, chapter 11, verse 6, says that you can't please God without faith. So if you don't have faith in God, you're not going to be able to please him. If you're not sure you're in Christ, don't be fooled. You can't have the world and have God. Uh, one more verse. Uh, this is John, uh, John wrote this gospel. He also wrote some letters. In 1 John, his first letter, chapter 2, verse 15, it says that if you love the things of the world more than God, the love of God cannot be in you. That's because God's love is all-consuming. It can't coexist with lesser loves. It has to be your highest love, or you can't call it love at all. If that's where you are, if your loves are divided, maybe you're loving the things of the world more than you're loving God. Honestly, if you're just indifferent to God, then your resurrection is before judgment, not before life. But friend, it doesn't have to be. Everybody will be raised from the dead someday. That's, that's what's clear here. Everybody will be raised from the dead someday. Jesus, who's the word of God, this is what happens. He will speak, and your body will rise up. It will, and you will go before him. And he won't be looking for a, a track record of greatness or for your special contribution to humanity. He'll be looking for faith. Simple, childlike faith. A faith that leads you to humility and a desire to please God and a hope of blessing other people. At the resurrection, God will know all things And I think it might be more complicated than this, but he will only need to ask one question. The only question he'll need to ask is, when you heard my voice, what did you do? If you said, I responded, yes, Lord. That's the response. Yes, Lord, you will receive his reward. Answer, yes, Lord. When you hear the voice of God, of Jesus, answer, yes, Lord. If you're not sure all of what that means to answer, yes, Lord, that's okay. I'm not sure of all that means to answer, yes, Lord, myself. We'll walk that way together. But I am sure of this. You don't want to ignore him. It's the worst thing you can do. The worst thing you can do is ignore him. So let's, just, let's let our answer be yes together. Let's pray. God, may our answer be yes in you and through you. You give us that yes for all you call answer. So I pray that you would call these precious folks, that everybody here, everybody who might listen to this in some other way, would know the, the exclusive claim of Christ is you got to go through him. But it's such an inclusive call that there is not one person you will deny if they come in your name. 
at the resurrection of the dead, may we be found in you. In Jesus' name, we hope. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.